temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins and the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the Spirit is flesh. I'm sorry, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world may be saved through him. Whoever believes, in him, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the, Holy Son, the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You may be seated. Father, we need to hear from you. We need for you to illuminate your word to us. Outside of that, everything that we do is cold, dead religion. Father, may you, through your Holy Spirit, Speak to us this day. 
teach us about who you are. Reveal to us who we are. Reveal to us once again our need for salvation, for your saving grace in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Found within these verses is what used to be the best known and quoted text of Scripture, John 3.16. That's now been replaced by Matthew 7.1. Judge not, lest ye be judged. Just with the Matthew verse, we by and large have a wrong understanding of what John 3.16 means. And for that matter, this entire section of Scripture. How this 16th verse of chapter 3 of the book of John became so well known only happened through the cultural Christian craze that began about 60 years ago. A craze that turned its back on orthodoxy, that decided that doctrine was bad, that your relationship with God was personal, and that God was love but just not the love as the Bible describes it. A craze that was tied directly in with the flower power anti-establishment movement that swept over not just America, but most, most of the Western world. People are basically good. We just need a little help from our friends. The law of God is bad. It hindered our free expression of love and our desire to explore ourselves through drugs and communal living. John 3.16 should never have been the poster child for the book of John. That should have been John 20, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And if there was ever a single verse that should have been the best known, best quoted verse of the Bible, it should be Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here, God is seen as God, as love, the creator of all things, ruling and reigning supreme over all things. God of God, Lord of Lords, sovereign over all his creation. If you get this verse right, then everything in the Bible just falls in line. But having said that, what we're dealing with is the hand that God has dealt us. In his sovereign wisdom, he has allowed Satan, through human agency, to tamper with his, word of, with his word in order that we could play at being religious in trying to deceive the very elect of God, if that were possible. What this has caused is for those that are his to actually care, to dig into his word, to jettison all the religious trappings of the American Christian craze and to study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed. Our sermon today is going to do just that. We're going to focus on doing that. To cut away all the bunting, all the programs, the committees, the social justice warriors, and get back to the true meaning of these verses. This is the tack that I'm going to take. First, I'm going to give a basic outline of the verses, give you some historical background on how we got to where we are with them, and then explain them in their true biblical meaning. And finally, to make application of them. So let's begin. Verse 16 is an explanation of the gospel truth that Jesus was telling Nicodemus in verses 1 through 15 of this chapter. It's a reiteration of the gospel message that John began this book with, 
in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And it's the prologue to the gospel message that, ends, that he ends this book with in chapter 20. Verse 17 explains the purpose of the sending of the Son. Verses 18 and 19 provide the promise of salvation and then the truth concerning man. And verse 20 and 21 are given us to contrast those that have life in the Son of God with those that do not have life in Him. They're given to explain how any move from our natural God-hating, sin-loving darkness to the unnatural, God-loving, sin-abhorring light. We humans always want to come up with shortcuts or cliff notes in order to find an easier way to accomplish things. It's just how we do stuff. The Bible hasn't been immune from human meddling either. Most notably, we've added chapter breaks and verse numbers. The initial intention was to make it easier to navigate through Scripture, and I'll give it to you that it does make it easier to navigate through Scripture. But what has happened, by and large, is that these shortcuts have destroyed the flow and the intended meaning, and have separated linked thoughts within Scripture, and created the ability to more easily come up with wrong meanings of verses. Most of us sitting here have been affected by another shortcut that's been added to the Bible. When we read today's verses, we read them in red letters. Those red letters are supposed to signify that these were the actual spoken words of Jesus. This, too, was not part of the original text. The idea of printing the words of Christ in red originated in 1899 by a, a man named Louis Klopsch, who was the editor of the Christian Herald magazine in Chicago. He was not a trained historian or a seminarian. He was an English major that ran a medium-sized Christian magazine. But because he was friends with D.L. Moody, his edition was quickly accepted. And today, it's thought as normal to find this separation within the Bible. I say separation because that's exactly what it has done. It's created a false dichotomy within Scripture that somehow those words that are in red have more meaning, more power, are the actual words of Christ, and the ones that are in black are not. This is just not the case. The entire Bible is the Word of God. It's all spoken by Christ. None is more important than the rest. This tool, the red letters, has been part of the downgrade of the Word of God, and has helped fuel the attack on the inerrancy of Scripture. So this history lesson has been given so we can understand where we got to where we are today, and also understand how far our understanding of Scripture is from the true meaning. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. First of all, John 3, 16 through 21 is not a direct statement by Christ. It's a meditative thought by the apostle John. So, if a case could be made to annotate the words of Christ in red, these would have never been read. They should never have been read. They would have been relegated to those lesser verses that are just black. The chapter breaks, verse numbers, and red letters all conspire together to produce in our minds a false narrative of the intent of the original author. As I said in my outline, Verse 16 is not the single catchphrase that Jesus used to hang his entire life and ministry upon. They are a commentary by John concerning the answer that Jesus gave Nicodemus when he asked in verse 9, How can these things be? John has already added commentary many times in the first three chapters of his book. 
such as the commentary concerning the statement by Jesus that he would raise the temple in three days. Did you catch that commentary that, that was made after Jesus said, I'll raise the temple in three days? And then John put in there, the disciples remembered. That was a commentary. The things that Nicodemus were referring to when he asked, how can these things be where the second birth, entrance into the kingdom of God, and the lack of human involvement in either of the two? Jesus told Nicodemus that just as the serpent lifted up was the only hope for the judgment of God and the deadly snakes that he sent, the only true hope for all humanity is to look with belief upon the Savior who would be lifted up as well. These verses are a commentary. But there's another purpose in penning these verses as well. But before we can unpack it, we need to address that elephant that's in the room. American Christians, when we read verse 16, laser focus in on a single word in this verse. Unfortunately, we direct our focus on the wrong word. We focus on world. This has become the lightning rod for the semi-Pelagians. They have spent a lot of time, written a lot of words, trying to prove that God sent his son to make propitiation for everyone who ever lived for all eternity. This is how most mainstream evangelicals define the use of this word and actually understand this verse to say. Now to be fair, John does use the word cosmos and cosmos does mean world. However, this isn't the first time that he's used that word in his gospel. And won't be the last. He uses it a lot, 78 times to be exact. In fact, he's already used it in two verses before this. And in neither case did it mean all people for all time. The first time was in John 1, 9, when he says, The true light which gives light to everyone has coming, was coming into the world. And then three times in verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. In verse 9, he used that word world to describe the realm of man, the realm that Christ came into. In verse 10, the first two times that he uses it, he once again is speaking of the realm that Jesus came into. The verse 9 world is meant to explain that Jesus became human that he became flesh and he tabernacled with us. The second world describes not only the place that we call world, but those that live, breathe, and die on that place that we call world. And then a third use of the world does describe all humanity for all time. When he says that they didn't receive him. So you can't assign a single static meaning to the word world. You can't do that and be theologically sound, historically accurate, and even sane. Any more than you can assign a single static meaning to the word all. Just like with the word all, there are different meanings in the word to the word world in scripture. In fact, John, like I said, he uses it 78 times. He used it 10 different, at least 10 different ways. I'm going to go through and tell you what they are. First, the first meaning for world is the entire universe, as we talked about in John 1.10. The second is the physical earth, chapter 13, verse 1. The world system is the third way, John 12, 31. The fourth way, all humanity minus believers, John 7, 7. The fifth way, a big group but less than all people everywhere, John 12, 19. The sixth way, the elect only, John 3, 17. The seventh way, the non-elect only, John 17, 9. 
the eighth way, the realm of mankind. Again, John 1.10 and John 3.16. The ninth way, Jews and Gentiles, not just Jews, not just the nation Israel, but also Gentiles, 4, verse 42. And finally, the general public as distinguished from a small private group, John 7, 4. So, with these 10 options, how are we to know which one John was meaning in John 3, 16? This is where we have to look past those red letters, past those verse numbers, and past the chapter breaks if we're ever going to grasp the intended meaning of the Word of God. John uses world four times in verses 16 through 19, stating that God sent his Son into whatever world is, that his Son was sent not to condemn whatever it is, and that the light came into whatever it is. If the meaning of the word world is static, meaning all people for all time, then these verses make no sense. Even worse, it contradicts other verses such as John 13, 1. This takes me back to the other word that the semi-Pelagians love, all. There are Bible versions that replace whosoever, John 3:16 with all. And just like with the word world, they think that by doing that, that it bolsters their case. They think all means all, and that's all all ever means. But just like with the word world, all has differing meanings. If I said to you, I'm going to buy you all lunch today, that doesn't mean that I'm going to buy everybody who ever lived for all eternity lunch. It doesn't mean that I'm going to buy everybody who lives in Altus lunch. All has different meanings. But the major consensus of professing Christians today think that the meaning of this verse is that God's love is extended in the same manner and extent to all humans at all times in all places. All are afforded the same ability to choose to love God or not, to accept his love or not. They have the ability to be saved or not. This is wrong for a number of reasons, including the fact that Scripture doesn't support such a claim and that such heresy dethrones God and provides a false assurance to many who want to be spiritual but not godly. In fact, God, John's gospel contradicts this heresy over and again in the specificity of the election of the people of God. Such as in John 10, 25 through 29, when Jesus said to them, I told you and you don't believe. He's talking to the Pharisees. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Secondly, if this were the case, then the shed blood and propitiation of Christ is not sufficient or efficient to save because most people through human history have not believed in the name of Christ. Third, this view of the word world has only gained popularity in the last two centuries, tying it in with the secular progressiveness of the Enlightenment. And finally, most damning, is that the stated purpose of the second coming of Christ, if this is true, that stated purpose of him coming would be nonsensical. God could not judge anyone for sin if he died for everyone's sin. His son died for them all. A debt paid is a debt paid. It doesn't matter if you recognize it or not, if you accept it or not. If I paid off your mortgage, it doesn't matter whether or not you want me to or not. 
you go and you try and make a payment and you guess, guess what? Your mortgage company is gonna say, we don't have a record of you having a mortgage with us anymore. It's paid off. It doesn't matter if you want to accept it or not. It's a done deal. To judge and condemn any by God would be called double jeopardy. And it wouldn't be keeping with his righteousness or his justice. Both are attributes of his that are equal to and even tied in with his love. So, since all people for all time is not the correct understanding of the word world in verse 16, what is? And why did John pen this sentence? The answer is that verse 16 is a biblically correct presentation of the gospel. One that we would learn well and learn to emulate. God, man, sin, grace. If you ever go to a diamond broker to buy a diamond, he's going to sit you down at a table, put a black cloth in front of you, and shine a direct light over that black cloth. Then he's going to take the diamonds that you're interested in and set them underneath that. He's not trying to distract you. He's not trying to make you feel better about wanting to buy a diamond. The light and the cloth are used to reflect the radiance and beauty of the diamond, to show off its perfection. That black cloth has no value in and of itself. And any person that would push those diamonds inside and pick up that cloth and look at it and go, man, this is a great looking cloth, would be an idiot. It has no value. World, in verse 16, is the black cloth that John uses as the backdrop to show off the beauty and perfection of the love of God. B.B. Warfield wrote, World is not here a term of extension so much as a term of intensity. Its primary connotation is ethical, and the point of his employment is not to suggest that the world is so big that it takes a great deal of love to embrace it all, but the world is so bad that it takes a great kind of love to love it at all, and much more to love it as God has loved it when he gave his son for it. Warfield's view on this meaning of the word world is supported by the text itself. Since John tells us in verse 19 that the world loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil. When we view world in this manner, we can see how amazing God was in the eyes of John. And how much our understanding of the love of God is lacking. Read it this way. God loved humans. People who are morally bankrupt, who disobey him at every turn. This world, God loved to the point of sending his only begotten son into, in order that some of these vile, disease-ridden, God-hating people, his elect, would be ransomed from their self-inflicted slavery, saved from his just judgment, and grafted into his family, all through the propitiation of the Son. Is it any wonder that the love of God captivated John? He wrote more about the love of God than any other biblical author. Is it any wonder that as he penned the statements that Jesus made concerning that bronze serpent pointing to himself, that his heart would overflow in the commentary on the love of God? World was not the focus of John, and it shouldn't be ours either. Instead, what John was trying to emphasize was God and the amazing love that permeates every part of his being and overflows to his creation. For God so loved the world. The emphasis is on who loved, not 
who is loved. Humans don't deserve love. In fact, we can barely love each other as witnessed by what's going on around us. We have zero attributes within us that would bring a holy God to love us. And yet, he gave his only begotten son. Here, John puts on full display the love of God. He's laid the black cloth of the world down and is directing the radiant light of the love of God onto the most precious diamond in all existence, the only begotten Son of God. And what are the effects of this amazing love? That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The initial meditation of John concerning the love of God are the natural outpourings, the effects of his love. That sinful men, including John, can be saved should cause any who see this amazing truth to desire to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. But who are these whoever people that John speaks of in verse 16, if they're not all people for all time? The answer is found all through the Bible and in the book of John itself. Again, Jesus answered that question in John 6, 35 and 40. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. That all does mean all. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Or you can go back to the beginning of the book of John and see that verse 16 is not a standalone thought by John. It's not wishful thinking on his part. It's nothing less than a restatement of the gospel truth that he opened his letter with. He said, The true light which gives light to everyone has, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his people did not receive him. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. John 1, 9-13 Our verses that we're focusing on today are nothing more than a restatement of this truth. In them, he shows that the meaning of the word world is not static. And he shows that the ethnic Jews are not the children of God. And finally, he answers the question concerning how sinners transform into saints. All through God alone. So, moving past the controversy surrounding the meaning of the word world in verse 16, we can finally begin to unpack the verses 17 through 21, which explain the gospel presentation of verse 16. Remember, God. We're going to start there. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Here we go again. In this verse, John uses that word again. Not just once, but three times. But did you notice that these verse, this verse sounds a lot like the John 1 verses? And here, there, I'm sorry, he used the word world three times as well. And just in those verses, there's multiple meanings. In this verse, however, John clarifies the purpose of sending his son. First, by stating what the son was not sent to do. Namely, to condemn the world. He'll come back to do that. But let's not get hung up on words like world or even might in this verse. 
John didn't intend for us to think all people for all time when he used the word world. And he did intend for us to think that salvation was only an option for those that Jesus came to ransom when he used the word might. When reading the text in context, a right understanding of what John was intending in these verses is that the word world here is meant the elect of God. And that his use of, his, of that word might is speaking of the means of salvation, not the chance of it. We know that this is the meaning by reading this verse alongside of the rest of his gospel, such as the John 1 verses. But for those who hold to a semi-Pelagian view of salvation, those that hold that God gave previent grace to all mankind, whatever that is, enabling them to be just good enough to choose Christ. Verse 17 is a watershed text for their false gospel. They read John 17 like this. Verse 17. For God did not send his Son into all mankind for all eternity to condemn it, but in order that all mankind for all eternity could make a free will choice to be saved through him. When you read it like that, can you see why so many are convinced of this false gospel? It's warm. It's fuzzy. And it's very humanistic. And it gets God off that hook of being considered unfair or unjust or mean in the election of his uh, people. But it also strips him of his sovereignty and hands it over to mere mortals. However, this is not a standalone verse, and you can't build a theology around just, or one, just one or even two verses, at least not a biblically sound theology. To be certain, we humans are all benefactors of the love of God from the Trinity. Through the overflow of this love, he created an amazing, beautiful galaxy with the perfect environment on this planet for his magnus opus, us, mere mortals. And he gives us life, beauty, light, warmth, and rain. He gives us food, health, comfort, joy, all overflowing from the, the desire to magnify his name. All of this is much more than any human ever deserves. However, there is a special and distinct love that God has for those that he had chosen as his own, the elect of God. These are who is meant by the use of the word world in verse 17. Again, all you have to do is read the prologue to this account found in chapter 1 to understand that this is the only true and reasonable meaning. God. Man. Verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. There is a separation in this section of scripture that has to be addressed. Every human has had to or will deal with this. There is a tension here, and that tension is the election of God. It doesn't matter if you're a Calvinist or not a Calvinist. You believe in election. That tension is put on full display in this verse. There is a separation in humanity. It's not ethical. I'm sorry. It's not ethnic. It's not between the sexes and it's not a separation based on age. That separation is based is between those that are condemned and those that are not. That separation is manifested by a simple act of one of those groups, the not condemned. What causes one person to run to God and another not to? The answer to this question and the resolution of this tension are both found within the verses that explain John 3.16. 
those that are not condemned believe in the name of the Son of God. While there is a separation in, in this verse, this verse does mean all people for all time. The people in verse 18 stood condemned and could not believe in his name, could not comprehend this love. They had no ability to. There was no spark of goodness within them. There was no glimmer of life in their cold, dead hearts. There was no previent grace, whatever that is, given to them so they could choose God. We have no further to look than verse 19 to validate this truth. So John has told us now about God in his gospel presentation, God and man. And now he moves on to sin, verses 19 and 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That word has popped up again. Here John tells us what he means in the use of the word world by telling us that people, all people, love darkness rather than light. And because, and I'm sorry, and the reason is this, because they are evil. And their works prove it. We need to get this right. Sinners sin because that's all they can do. Our sinning does not make us sinners, though. It's not our sins that make us sinners. And you can argue that people do good things, nice things, even kind things, a point I'm willing to concede. But you still have not disproved the truth concerning sin. Because the Bible never says that people can't be kind to one another. It doesn't say that people can't do nice things or even be pleasant. What it does say is that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.1 The problem is in our understanding of what sin is. See, we think that sin is an action that is contrary to the law of God. It is that. But it's much more than that. Sin is anything that is done outside of our desire to bring glory to God. Thinking, acting, just being. All of these things are sin outside of the desire to bring glory to God. This is sin. This is why all of our actions, no matter how kind, how pleasant, or how seemingly good, are all evil. We do them outside of the desire to glorify God. We do them in our own darkness, in the darkness of our own God, outside of the light of the true God. And how many people does verse 19 say came running to that light? Answer? Zero. Why does it say that no one came to the light? Because they loved their sin, darkness. Because their very nature was sin, evil. Verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. In most gospel presentations, we want to run right past the sin of man. The just condemnation of the eternal judgment of a righteous God. And right to the so-called good news of your best life now. Most people, if they ever share the gospel, will tell others that they need Jesus to help them to get over depression, to help them get out of debt, to help them get off of drugs. He is a cure for what is ailing you in your physical needs, in your physical realm. We see Jesus as nothing more than a hand up for our physical existence. 
This is the false gospel that is being preached in our culture. The true gospel is not a leg up, a helping hand to your best life now. Newsflash, Jesus cares very little about you having your best life now. If you are his, his primary concern is that you bring glory to his Father. And secondarily, that you are sanctified. Before anyone could ever see their need for Christ, they must be told the truth concerning themselves and the eternal damnation that is awaiting them. Every person does wicked things. We do them because that's our desire. It's our nature. It's the choice of our hearts. As we all know, no one has ever had to force a toddler to say mine, or to throw a tantrum, or even lash out at their siblings or others. This is a perfect example of the free will of man. We willingly choose to sin. And none, left unregenerate to themselves, will willingly choose to come to Christ. No one seeks after God. No, not one. Romans 3.11 We love our sin and don't want to stop sinning. We hate the truth of God. Hate that he reveals our sin to us which is why we try and dethrone him and place images that we create on his throne, as long as they don't reveal the truth about us. Finally, we're ready for grace. Verse 21, But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God, we finally come to the good news part of the gospel. John finalizes his meditative thought on the conversation with Nicodemus by telling us how those that stand justly condemned, that hate the light, that will not believe in the name of the Son of God, those whose actions are continually evil, how those are saved. Verse 21 is meant as a contrast to verse 20. Contrasting those that hate the light with those that come to the light. Both of these groups, verses 20 and 21, are part of those that are described in verse 19. The world that the light has come into, the world that loved darkness. However, there is something that has happened to those in verse 21 that contrasts them with those of verse 20. They have made a choice to run towards the light instead of away from it. So how do these whosoever people move from darkness to light? How are they able to do the works of God? The answer is that it is in God alone. John is summarizing the answer that Jesus gave earlier in this chapter concerning entering into the kingdom of God, concerning the second birth, concerning those born of the Spirit, those that the Spirit of God has worked within. From verse 1 of chapter 1 through verse 25 of chapter 21, John's sole desire is to make much of the God that delivered him from darkness to light. The entire book of John is a running commentary on the love of God found within the gospel of his only begotten Son. If you can see the darkness of your own sin and feel that separation from God and desire his light and love, repent of your sin. Cry out to him in faith, and he will save you from his wrath 
and bring you into fellowship with him. This salvation, which we enjoy, is the greatest expression of love that has ever overflowed to his creation. It is what motivated John to pen verse 16 through 21. He had to present the gospel once again. He had to make much of God through this presentation. God, man, sin, grace. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, what a love you have shown to us in the giving of your son. In dying for us, rabble, scum, men and women who hated you, whose every thought and desire was completely selfish. These you loved. Father, through your spirit, I pray that you would instill in us just how amazing this love is. It would impact our lives to the point that we would fall deeper in love with you, that we would be overcome by the love that you have shown to us through your Son, through his salvation, that you would be glorified, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.